Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is season two of Relatively. Well, I'm in my book line study, as you requested, so... Um... <laughs> the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. This week, we're talking to Giles Fraser. Now, there is a, a tiny chance, it's 5%, 3%, that my children will wake up. We call it doing a Jacinda, don't we, now, these days? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm the oldest, but I haven't always been the oldest. Um, uh, well, even that's not right. Goodness, how do we even start? In this episode, Giles will be talking about his older brother, Jonathan, who died before Giles was born. It feels illegitimate to have grief for somebody that you've never met, uh, never you know, been alive at the same time as. And yet I would describe it that way. It's so a part of our family's story um, and the pain uh, extends, it extends through the generations. Priest, journalist and broadcaster Giles grew up all over the place, moving house often. The loss of his brother shaped the way his family functioned and even influences Giles's own parenting style. We talk about that, about grief, faith and teenage rebellions. But Giles started by talking about Jonathan and his place in the family. I had a brother who uh, was born a few years before me, who passed away um, at seven months old. He died in what people used to call a cot death. And in fact, even before that, my mum had a, a stillbirth little girl called Mary who who lasted a little while and then before that had seven miscarriages so it goes in terms of my mum's pregnancies it goes seven miscarriages Mary Jonathan and then me and then um, perhaps we'll talk about what comes after me in a minute because that's a story too but that the family story extends in terms of siblings extends considerably before me and after me and I wonder what kind of sense you had of that as a child, that you were on a a line, a point in a line that went a long way back. Hmm. Jonathan was always talked about and it was still pretty raw even a few years after he died when I was born. And I certainly became aware, and more so as I got older, that my parents parenting style was very much shaped by what happened to Jonathan I've got a terrible memory and it's very hard to go back into how you felt as a child but Mm. um, I think I was aware that 
there was the presence of another sibling. My mother's pain was pretty evident, even when I was quite young. Mm. And I, I think I, I think I felt that was unusual. And I certainly felt that we were, well, my brother and I were particularly valued, stroke, um, protected. We were clung on to quite a lot. My dad reacted to it differently, but my mum certainly cried a lot. Mm. Um, It still does, actually. The tears are very close to the surface. Um, and, and in fact, yesterday was was the um, anniversary of Jonathan's death. He would have been, he'd be 60 next year in April, but he died 59 years ago yesterday. And um, I phoned my mum up and she has a little ritual that she does on that day. And, What's that? Um, Jonathan's ashes were put in a bird bath, which has always stayed in the family garden wherever we've lived. And she'd always put some flowers on the bird bath or sit by the bird bath. I don't know if that's a ritual as such, but the bird bath was the was the thing that would happen. And my birthday's in a few weeks' time, so it's um there's always a sense that Jonathan's death comes first and then my birthday happens. So if I do the maths, if you'll forgive me, yes. how old yes, does it... that make you, Giles? I'm terrible um, at ages and counting No, 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 it's fine. Well, I, I'm i quite terrible at it, but at the moment I'm 56 and I will be 57 in on November the 27th. Yeah, well, happy birthday for the end of the month. <laughs> then your you. early childhood <laughs> would have yeah. been um, 60s then. Yeah, so right? I, was born in, I was born in 1964 I think Jonathan was born in 62, would that be right? So there's nearly a couple of years between uh, him dying and me being born. And I'm wondering, before I want to talk more about how it was kind of explained and how you boys who came after understood Mm. what your mum had been through, if indeed you could, until you got to her age yourselves. But I Mm. wonder, it's interesting to think about what what the attitude was and how people treated that kind of tragedy in the 60s mm. compared to now, whether you have a sense mm. of it getting better. We have a language for it now. You would be called a rainbow baby now. You came after the loss or the death of a, a child. Oh, is that what it's called? I didn't know that name. Yeah. Is that what it's called, you a would rainbow be a, baby? You would be a rainbow baby now. But mm. And we have a place for, you know, we have a, a sort of place for those people to take their grief. There's sometimes special services and stuff. But I'm imagining in the 60s, that was less of the case. Yeah, my mum talks quite a lot about how people reacted to her, how they were very frightened of her pain. She recalls one event that happened in the supermarket when she saw someone who was, I don't know, friend stroke acquaintance. Mm. And um, the acquaintance thought my mother hadn't seen her and decided not to go down the same aisle because... I suspect, and my mum suspects, she didn't know what to say. Um, mm. She was too afraid of my mum's pain. And funny enough, I—I I mean, I'm a—I'm a priest, and I mean, other people's pain is sort of my stock in trade. 
um, in a way. And I've always learned, I think, through what happened with my mum, I've never been quite so afraid of other people's pain. I can bear quite a lot of pain from other people. And it doesn't, I don't find it destroying. And I think pastorally, that's quite a gift. I mean, I'm terrible in other ways pastorally, but that's one way in which I don't think I'm, I am uh, terrible. And I, I'm sure that's related to the fact that I was born when my mum was still in a period of mourning. And being denied her grief in some ways. If people don't aren't strong enough to sit with you in it, then it's yeah. almost being denied, isn't it? And I think yeah. that's really painful. Yeah. She talks um, quite a bit about those people who were very helpful and those people who are not. And the church was in the not category. She talks about somebody who came too quickly with answers in those situations. And there's religious mm-hmm. versions of that. And there's there's secular versions of that, you know, um, time will heal and all those sorts of things that people say. So let's go back to the 60s for you then, rather mm. than for your mum's experience. And it it is heartbreaking to hear that. And I'm really sorry that that was your mum's experience, because that must have been incredibly lonely at certain points. Mm. But as the little boy that came along afterwards, at what, I mean, I suppose you can't really remember at what age you became conscious, but mm. how was the life and the death and the missing of Jonathan explain to you can you remember right at the beginning I mean this much I know that it was explained to me well before I could remember it being explained to me if you understand what I mean so I think it was explained to me before I had the capacity to even to take it in it begins to dawn on you what's what what's happened and there were photographs of him and uh, all of that there were also other things which was um those people who were particularly good during that time. So there was one. So Jonathan died in the night. They woke up. They thought Jonathan was having a lion. They went downstairs. They sort of rather appreciated that he was having a lion because, you know, kids, kids, they didn't Baby have much don't. sleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they went downstairs, perhaps had a cup of tea. And only later, my dad went up and. Uh, found him I think that's right and anyway they they called um, some family friends and they came round attended uh, to the body um, and that the was friends a kind, the friends did as I as I remember and they're very very close family friends um and that was a sort of bonding between our families. I, I think my dad ran into the street and wouldn't come back. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's hard. I'm, I, 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 these are things you don't talk about very much. And uh, I find myself strangely. Uh, well, not strangely. How can it be strangely? But I'm, 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 you know, I can feel myself, I can feel myself welling up talking to you about it. Well, there's, um, there's such raw horror in that moment it's horror. that anybody, it's sheer, anybody sheer horror. can imagine. It's sheer horror. Yeah, no, it's it's sheer horror. It's sheer horror. And um, he died before I was born, 
but it's so a part of our family's story and the pain uh extends it extends through the generations but but in my mum's life it's it's something that she just it's a part of her it's just built into her i mean there's there was all sorts of consequences for me about it happening inevitably one of the consequences that is that i was definitely sort of loved to the point of overprotection almost mm. I don't know if it's quite claustrophobic, but I, I was aware of being, this sounds stupid really, but I was aware of being loved stroke overloved. Yeah. Well, I mean, she must have been so fearful. I mean, you must live in... Ter- terribly fearful. Terribly fearful. Ter- terribly fearful. And what do you do with that fear if you don't... I mean, the most positive thing you can do is is love your child too much. Exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not... It, it's, it sounds churlish to complain that. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think it but sounds it, churlish. A... I, I just wonder what I would do. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I do. I mean, I definitely do that. I mean, I... And in fact, I wouldn't... I wouldn't know... Well, I wouldn't know how to... I wouldn't know how to go on. But... And when you become a sort of rebellious teenager... That's an obvious thing to to rebel against, you know. That sort of, uh, and I, I mean, I don't think it takes a particularly adept psychotherapist to work out that some of my rebelliousness is is somehow rooted in in some of those very early experiences about feeling overly protected, if that's it. But also massively appreciated. Well, it was it was it was wonderful to be made to feel so safe and loved. Yes, but at the, at the same time, at your worst points, I could imagine with your sort of teenage rationality or lack of rationality, yeah. it's like yeah. you're being treated yeah. in a certain way for a thing that you never even witnessed or understood were responsible for, yeah. and yet you're bearing a bit of a bit of it somehow, and that must be such a muddly feeling mixed in with actually there's there's grief right for something that is missing that there should have been and there was an older brother. Yes, and it's it's funny to talk about grief in this context because it feels illegitimate to have grief for somebody that you've never met, never been alive at the same time as. And yet, I would describe it that way. Um, but it's confusing. I mean, it, it it's confusing to have that uh, to have that pain and 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 also my sort of teenage get off me type of. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can inherit grief, can't you? And there is secondhand trauma. We know about that now. And so... I do think so. Yeah. Yes, I think there must be. And if you're living in the home with a woman who... She lost a son, yes, but she lost seven, eight babies before that. That's She was carrying one hell of a lot of pain. And then it's very claustrophobic to be with that pain. And you would have absorbed it somewhere in your through your skin somewhere breathed it in yeah i I, i'm sure i did um and i'm sure uh it has shaped me uh in both positive and negative ways i'm sure that's right Uh, Mm. perhaps that even sounds too functional really shaped me i just uh I, i i do feel i carry some of it anyway yeah ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's another consequence. I'm going to just carry the story on a little bit before you ask Please. me the questions. Because, um, so I had a couple of years uh, after me, I had an older brother. A younger brother, I, I think his experience will be similar to mine. And then when I went away to school when we were teenagers, I had a friend at school whose parents died in very difficult circumstances when he was 13. Uh, it's a long story, but in the end, he ran away from the guardians that were appointed for him. And he came and pretty much turned up with us. In the end, he came and lived with us and my parents adopted him. Oh. And he took the surname Fraser. So I have one biological brother and I had one adopted brother from 13. And my parents were... Um, we've talked about this quite a lot, about the sense in which my mother lost Jonathan and gained Anthony. Now... That sounds wrong, you put it that way, because it sounds like some sort of replacement, and it's not. But there was certainly a pain of loss in Anthony when he lost his mum mm. in difficult circumstances. And he's certainly become my brother, uh, to the extent that when he pisses me off, he's still my brother, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that if my mum hadn't had that that terrible pain with Jonathan... What happened with Anthony probably wouldn't have happened in the same way. So what I want to say is those consequences, you know, up into my teenage years and, you know, and Anthony and Jonathan have some, have some, I don't know, they both can, I think there's some connection, however difficult it is to describe in my mother's mm. um, soul. Yeah. It just sounds like when you were describing the way that this event that happened before you were born has shaped you inevitably shaped you it sounds a little bit like listening to it that you know your mum's heart was broken but it was almost broken open (laughs) and in the same way it shaped her like you once you've known pain you can see it in others and respond to it sometimes better so maybe Mm. she just became I don't know it just sounds like this that it matched in some way that that's a beautiful phrase broken open i think that's i think that did happen to my mother i i mean i think you're right that there's um uh, that there's ways in which one is available to other people hmm. in ways that were sort of like that 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 experience of great suffering you know makes possible but i also think it probably does damage you as well well, it's trauma, isn't it? It's it's deep trauma. That sort of trauma is is um, is is lifelong, is lifelong. And my mum, you know, my mum's still alive, and uh, my dad's still alive. 
There's something rather lovely about our ability to talk about him and to have a little cry. Um, it's not, you know, we'd, we wouldn't talk about him now. We'd talk about him two or three times a year, maybe. Um, but those conversations are very intimate and, yeah. And I wonder with um, your family friends, whether you know they came when he just died and they helped mm. it's so intimate that oh, those amazing. moments of death and amazing. how you know he was they knew him obviously they'd cuddled yeah. him and had him on their lap and they knew yeah. your mum when she was pregnant and it yeah. to know someone who knew them and to keep them real and to talk about them easily that's a real gift isn't it so even yeah. those little conversations you have for your mum must feel like he, he was he lived he was real yeah Yeah. my feelings are valid all of that which is so hard with the death of babies and young children because it is people I'm not sure have made so much progress in the last 40 50 60 years I always ask my my mum all the time what was he like what was he like you know would Mm -hmm. now it's you know he died at seven months so it's not that I don't know quite how you can answer those questions but she does he was much gentler. My biological brother and I are, are quite, um, quite tough. Are quite tough, I suppose. I think we're pretty mm. tough and robust and quite vulgar. And, you know, I, I think I've got quite a vulgar soul, really. You're the priest. You can say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I just, you know, I, I, I'm a bit of a scrapper and so forth. But um, I think Jonathan was a very gentle spirit. That's what my mum says. And then, of course, the other the other consequence it has is that it sounds silly, but um, my eldest daughter uh, was born on the same day, her same birthday as Jonathan. Oh. And now this was a matter of real anxiety for me, you know, in some sort of superstitious way. I was very keen for her to get past the date that Jonathan died. Uh, when she was a baby that that for me was making sure she was okay and and I I mean perhaps it extends to my parenting style as well you know one of the things that people used to say about cot death was it was to do with too warm or too cold all this sort of stuff Mm. and modern technology has been very well used in the Fraser household for our (laughs) children because I watched the bloody temperature thing <laughs> really quite assiduously. And, you know, if it starts to go off, it's too hot. I'm I'm a bit all over that. But I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure that's just symptomatic of, I'm sure that's just symptomatic of actually how my emotional parenting style is actually really quite shaped by what happened with Jonathan. Well, I'm sure it is because I think what people sometimes say, I was listening to another podcast that was talking about this, when something terrible happens to somebody often the first phrase that people reach for is, oh, I just can't imagine that. And actually that's it's completely not true to start with because you can and you probably have, is what this podcast said. And the second mm. thing is you're putting somebody in a category apart and being like, well, I can't possibly imagine that. That's just truly horrendous. Off you go. You're over there in a silo of yeah. people that I can't think about. But actually if the worst has happened and <clears throat> your family hasn't had to empathize sympathize or imagine it's actually happened and it's affected you on such a profound level of course you're going to be like that about the temperature because you're not Mm. you're not like an every other parent who hasn't had the 
direct or indirect influence of that just imagining you you know <laughs> like you know I, I have the i have some sympathy with the othering of that sort of pain even though i uh, only because the sort of people when people say it's unimaginable i agree with you that people do imagine it they have nightmares about it they they you know people know that they fear it but i do have a sort of how could you not have a sort of sympathy with people wanting to push that sort of fear away Mm. um you know that's the sort of fear i want to push away as well um so as a priest who's good pastorally at sitting with people in their pain that's something that you know you've learned to do or is innate in you or is somehow has been built into you yeah what do you do now when faced with this kind of pain you must have seen people who've lost children in similar circumstances do you think that we've got better at it? Do you think the church would be in the in the behaved well box these days? Oh, there's good. I I don't I don't know really. You see, what people do, I don't think it's a theological problem. I think what it is is that some people, and I think this is religious or not religious, are are very disturbed by being in heightened emotional situations where they don't have a quote-unquote answer, and they feel they need to find some sort of words of reassurance. I expect their words to reassure themselves as well, that the universe is is a kinder place than it seems today. You know, that's when you can easily go wrong. It's when you reach too quickly for some sort of cheap consolation. Mm. I've never thought of it this way, and you've prompting me to think of it but one of the things I often say about what I think church is for and certainly I think my church is for is it's a place where you come and hold the stuff that you don't know how to cope with or deal with or answer um I think I think that that sums up quite a lot of what I believe actually it's very interesting I used to teach just sorry one thing about this because how it crosses so I used to teach philosophy in oxford and one of the the questions you always have in philosophy's religion is the so-called problem of evil problem of pain you know how does a good mm-hmm. god exist and bloody bloody but we, we all know that if there's so much pain misery and suffering in the world and you know i sort of get students exploring these questions and coming up with different answers and so forth and it struck me that there was such a a disconnect between and i was also a priest at the time between what people said to me at funerals and what the questions they were asking as undergraduates in essays about the problem of suffering, problem of evil. Mm. And I think one of the things I'd want to say about pain is that what students didn't quite see is that when people go why, which is quite common, it's more a cry than it is a question. It's more like, it's more like, uh, it's it's more a cry for help. It's more, fucking hell, what's this all about? It's more, um, rather than a sort of like, how do these pieces all fit together in terms of how mm. the universe works? So yeah, so- it's a very, it's a very odd. There's a very odd disconnection between the sort of intellectual interrogation of pain. And it's emotional, it's phenomenological uh, experience. Mm. 
Mm. And my next question was going to be then, as a kind of mm. fully, you know, a grown up now. <laughs> um, yes. And somebody who's <laughs> gone past the age that your mum was when she lost Jonathan and somebody who has this um, theological worldview that I'm sure bends and shifts according to your experiences and yes. whatever else informs your faith. How, how do you look at your brother now and how do you look at your mum's pain in losing your brother? Has it... Do you bring some of that theology to bear in the way that you talk to her about it and the way that you think about him? Because it must have shifted from that little boy that saw the pictures and didn't even know what death was to the man that you are now who ministers to people who wail at funerals to ask why. You'd think it would have changed, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm asking. Yeah. No, no. You, I mean, I know. <laughs> but... Uh, I. I I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not so sure that it's changed that much. You know, in a sense, my mother's response to that pain was to hold her children tighter, and I still think, in theological terms, if I had to sort of do it without all my sort of academic filters on. It's something about being held by God that feel, feels to me terribly important. I mean, Christianity is one of the world's great religions that really faces pain very directly with the crucifixion and so forth. So this is horror built into the heart of things. But the idea that um, that love is the ultimate... Um, that the universe is 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 pregnant with loving purpose it seems to me absolutely rock bottom with what i believe and i and i suspect that's that's there in holding my children and being hold, held by my mother I, I i also want to say something else about jonathan i i sort of want to say something really odd about jonathan but i feel like i i love him you know i really want to say that i love him uh, this I never met him. I uh, and he's certainly my brother, and he's certainly a part of the sort of my sense of what my family is about. And um, I rather like his gentle presence amongst his other brothers, who are probably a lot more robust than him. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if I'm imagining that or not. That's that's certainly I feel. Well, maybe he has his rightful place in the family. Like it's he definitely never going to go away. No, exactly right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He does have his place in the family, and he's there in the bird bath. And I think when my parents pass away, I think that bird bath will come to me. Thank you to Giles, and thank you too for listening. Now, I wanted to tell you a word I discovered, which I think might be perfect for now. Oh, go on! I want to hear it now. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> It's a Portuguese word, and I don't yeah. know if you know it. You probably do, but it's called yes. um, saudade. I think that's how you I, say I it. I don't. I don't know it. It's a longing, a nostalgia, and a loss for something or someone that you may never have known. So they actually oh. have a word for the particular pain and tug. And I thought that was good. That's a very interesting thing. <laughs> for siblings affected in this way. 
Or if you're a parent and you need some resources, you can head to Child Bereavement UK at childbereavementuk.org. They have lots of good stuff. Coming up on Relatively in a little while, but a good time to say it because it's just been Remembrance Sunday, the amazing code-breaking sisters, Pat and Jean Outram, who have almost a century of sibling memories to share. To see some sweet pictures of Giles when he was little and to see baby and toddler pictures from all of our guests on Relatively Podcast from season one and season two, just head to the website relativelypodcast.com. Safe inside, only your ma's too proud. Your brother's ignoring you. You still feel safe inside. Oh, was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest had taken time, this didn't do enough for you. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 